The world is dark. People stab each other in the back. We do things so that we can try to climb the corporate ladder and to climb over bodies, dead bodies. Who cares? I just need to rise up in power and in influence and in fame and all those things. That's what I want for my life, but not Daniel because he doesn't serve an earthly kingdom. He serves an otherworldly kingdom, the kingdom of God. Welcome to the weekly sermon at Gateway. My name is Jason McNabb, and we're in our current series in the book of Daniel, where we're asking, how can God's people not only survive, but thrive in Babylon? For resources and information about this teaching series, or to learn about our ministry, please visit us at gatewaycrc.org. And now, here's this week's message. Let me ask you a question. When you think of Daniel, what instantly comes to mind? The lion's den, right? In fact, this past week, I went to Google, and I just punched, punched in Daniel. I wanted to see what the autofill, the first autofill would be, and it was in the lion's den. Uh, so we know that this is perhaps the quintessential story um, that most of us think about when we think about this book. Perhaps for those of you who have been raised up in church, you remember the flannel graph, right, of Daniel and the little lions, and he's petting them, or, or you know all the children's stories. But what I want to propose to you as we look at this extremely familiar story, that our collective knowledge of this story might actually serve as a disadvantage to knowing what the story is ultimately all about because the way that we often interpret this story is it's a moralistic tale. It is highlighting that if we obey God and if we have the courage to stand up like Daniel, then God will close the mouths of the lions in our own life. And yet, that misses the point entirely. There is a more profound truth that this story means to communicate to us, and I hope that by the end of our time this morning, you will see it so clearly. I also want to show you something. Um, if you ever find yourself in Chicago, I'd really encourage you to go to the uh, Oriental Institute Museum, which is in Hyde Park, and if you go there, you can see with your own eyes one of the most incredible structures, uh, pieces of art that was created during the time of Nebuchadnezzar called the Striding Lion. We've got a picture of this. There's the striding lion. Historians will tell us that this artistic masterpiece was created during the time of Nebuchadnezzar at the beginning of his reign, shortly after the exiles of the people of Judah, Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, being four of them. And we know that this specific piece of art was put up just outside what was called the Ishtar Gate. Babylon had eight gates. The Ishtar gate was the eighth and final gate that once you go in through this final one, you are now in the king's court. And as you know, as we've been talking about for the last number of weeks, where did Daniel work for 65 plus years? In the king's court. So it's a little bit eerie for me to think that every single day on his way to work, Daniel would look at this. And he wouldn't know what it means. He wouldn't know until in his 80s what that picture would represent. That one of the greatest obstacles of his life is still laid out before him. I just think that's kind of eerie, kind of cool. So Daniel 6 takes us beyond the time of King Nebuchadnezzar, beyond the time of King Belshazzar, and the reign of the Babylonians is now over. 
the Medes and the Persians, they now rule. We saw that last week in dramatic fashion. Uh, the Medes and the Persians, they took to the Euphrates River. They cut a hole in it. Water was flooding out one side. And the Euphrates River, the, the, the water began to drop. And then all the soldiers, they could walk through the Euphrates up to their thighs where the walls in Babylon were lowest. And with very little bloodshed, they walked in and they took over. We saw this from the historian Herodotus last week. He said this, the inhabitants of Babylon knew nothing of it. All this time they were dancing and celebrating a holiday which happened to fall then until they learned the truth only too well. So on this particular night, history will tell us in 539 BC, we have a change of power. Babylon will fall and the Babylonians will never take power ever again. Which is a crazy idea to think about even a, a generation previously. The Babylonians were the world's superpower. They had more soldiers, they had more gold, they had a greater economy, they had greater power than all the other nations combined. They were the most powerful nation the world had ever seen, even more powerful than Egypt while Israel was enslaved there. And yet, we see once again this message that kingdoms will rise and fall, but the kingdom of God stands forever. That's a message for them. It's also a message for us. So the Medes and the Persians, they will now take over, and Darius will take over. Chapter 6, verse 1. It pleased Darius to appoint 120 satraps to rule throughout the kingdom, with three administrators over them, one of whom was Daniel. The satraps were made accountable to them so that the king might not suffer loss. Take note of that. That's important. Now Daniel so distinguished himself among the administrators and the satraps by his exceptional qualities that the king planned to set him over the entire kingdom. Now, right off the bat, we have to see something. This is remarkable. In these first three verses we see that King Darius wants to figure out this question. Now that I have conquered Babylon, how do I keep it? How do I keep the most powerful city in the world under my wing? He doesn't want to have a, a Julius Caesar type moment where finally he comes to power, but then even his own satraps, his own administrators, his own people, the Babylonians, stab him in the back and he only has power for a short, short time. So the question that he's ultimately asking is, who do I trust? How can I set this up so that I can establish my rule and my reign? So he has this idea. I'm going to take 120 satraps and put them over the entire known land. All the land. And we don't use the word satraps. So think of them as members of parliament. Like our Brad Viss and our Ed Fast. So 120 of them all over the land. And then they, he said, I want three administrators over and above all the MPs. So think of them like a president or a prime minister. They're, they're looking at everything that's happening in all of these regions, and Daniel is one of those. And that is an absolutely crazy idea that Daniel would be considered one of those. And yet here he is. Here he is. We're realizing that Daniel, no matter where he goes, he is a man of integrity and a man of wisdom. So much so that even King Nebuchadnezzar put him in the highest position in all the land. 
And then Belshazzar, he comes along and he puts Daniel in the highest position of all the land after his father and himself, third highest ruler, if only for a night. And then Darius comes to power and he looks at Daniel and his exceptional qualities and he wants him to be in the highest position of all the land. Everyone who looks at Daniel, foreign rulers, other community members, they say, here's a man with exceptional qualities. And so we see that Daniel, no matter where he is or what circumstances he faces or how he got there, Daniel continues to trust in God's plan regardless of his circumstances. And so here's a point that I just want to lay out before you once again. This is not a moralistic tale that, you know, if we have the courage to stand, then God will bless our life. But ultimately, the nuance that we have to see here is this. If I am faithful to suffer well and to devote myself to God, then God will use it for his glory and for my good. For his glory and for my good. Because here's the thing that we have to recognize with Daniel. It's not as though he wanted to be in exile. It's not as though he wanted to get castrated. It's not as though he wanted to lose his family. It's not as though he wanted to go to Babylon University. And he certainly didn't want to live in exile in Babylon, serving pagan rulers for all of his days. And yet he trusted that God may be at work in this, using me to bring about his glory and my good as long as I am faithful to suffer well. And I think that's a principle that all of us, all of us need to consider in our own life. Is it possible that God may be using you in your circumstances as difficult and as painful as they may be to bring about his glory and your good? Hang on to that question as we keep going. So right here, this is where the conflict is ultimately going to rise. See, when you gather together the Medes, and the Persians, and you try to take over the most powerful nation in the world, the Babylonians, and then you are successful, then there's going to be some expectations from the people who have been trying to garner power all around you. You know that when you win an election cycle, or when you take over a foreign power, that all the people around you who have been funding the project, who have been speaking in your ear, the war generals, the officials, all the people who have been rising in power with you, they expect a payday. They expect to be put in high positions. And yet, what do we see with the story? It is so, so interesting. The king goes out and he gives a foreigner the most powerful position in all the land. And not just a foreigner, but a foreign slave. And not just a foreign slave, but a Jewish foreign slave. And this means trouble because there's bad blood between the Jews and the Medes and the Persians. You might recall at the beginning of the story, the great war broke out, right? There was the war between what we had was the Assyrians, the Egyptians, the Israelites, the Judeans. They're on this side. And then you had the Babylonians, the Medes, and the Persians, on this side, and they were waging war with one another. There is bad blood between the Jews and the Medes and the Persians. And here's Daniel receiving the highest position in all the land, and they're looking at Darius saying, what are you doing? You don't put a guy like that into power. And this means trouble. So here's the question we have to ask. Why would Darius do this? Why would he choose Daniel of all people to have the highest position in all the land. Well, we saw, look at verse three. 
Daniel so distinguished himself by his exceptional qualities. The most literal translation that we could give here is his exceptional spirit, which is an interesting concept for us to think about when we think of the fruit of the spirit, the way that the Holy Spirit works in and through us. And so here's Daniel, and Darius says, everything this guy touches turns to gold. He's a man of integrity, a man of wisdom. And not only that, more importantly, what did we read in verse 2? Look at this. Verse 2 says, so that the king might not suffer loss. So he's asking himself a very simple question. Who can I trust? Who can I trust with the money? Who can I trust with the treasury? Who can I trust to speak in a particular way even when I'm not in the room? Who can I trust that they're not going to try and form a coup and stab me in the back when I'm not there? So that I don't have an A2 Brute Julius Caesar moment. How can I trust all these chief officials when all they want is my position and my job? Who can I trust? And he looks around the room and he says, there's literally only one man that I can trust. His name is Daniel. He's the only person. Like, isn't that interesting? Isn't it interesting to think about how a pagan ruler like Darius can be so captivated by a faithful, God-fearing man like Daniel? See, that's exactly the point. One of the things that we read in Scripture, the Apostle Paul starts his letter to the church in Rome this way. He says, Since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that people are without excuse. See, all of us, we know that there is something wrong with the world. The world is not the way it's supposed to be. The world is dark. People stab each other in the back. We do things so that we can try to climb the corporate ladder and to climb over bodies, dead bodies. Who cares? I just need to rise up in power and in influence and in fame and all those things. That's what I want for my life. But not Daniel. Because he doesn't serve an earthly kingdom, he serves an otherworldly kingdom, the kingdom of God. And Darius looks at that and he says, there's something weird about this guy. He's the only one that I trust, even though he's not a Mede, he's not a Persian. He's a foreign slave, a Jewish foreign slave, and I trust him. And the question I have to ask you is, are we doing that? I want to share with you something really neat And we're going to hear more about this next week. But this past week, four members of Gateway got to represent this entire church as they went to a gala. We received a nomination from none other than Dan Vienemann. Thank you so much, Dan, for doing this. Archway Community Food Bank, Archway Services, reached out to us and they said, would you receive the Flood Hero Award for this city? And so we had the MLA there on behalf of our premier, We had Mayor Braun there. We had the CEO of Archway there and many other community members. And they honored you for the work that you have done this past year. One of the things that I have found uh, that I've tried to express to you in my four years as a pastor is are we serving in such a way that, that even a devout atheist who serves as a counselor for our municipality or in our province or in our country, that they would look at the work that we are doing here and they would weep and wail if Gateway ceased to exist. And they wouldn't be excited to throw on a McDonald's and get the tax revenue, but they would say, here's a church that loves the city 
I don't even understand why they do it, why they care so deeply for this city, but they do, they do. And this was the first time ever that they have awarded a church with an award like this. And they gave it to you because of everything that you've done over the course of this past year. How you have raised $1.4 million to help over 150 families to refurnish their homes. How you were there in the early days, removing debris and bringing them to the dump in our emergency services. How you brought to our distribution center and to the donation center all these goods to help families have food and material assistance. How you made meals and coyoted them over the border even when we couldn't get through so that we could help feed people in Sumas Prairie. How you opened up your homes for lodging so that other people could come in. How you have served in the pantry over the course of the last 10 plus months in ongoing support. And how you have raised so many funds to help rebuild these families' homes. You have done this. And the city has said, bless you for it. We might not share the same theological convictions, but we see something in you. We see the good work that you are doing. And we all know the reason why we do it, because we want to bless God in our city. And so I just want to say to you, thank you for stepping in over the course of this past year. But please join me in blessing God for the incredible work that he is doing now and he will continue to do moving forward because of his faithfulness. His faithfulness. Bless God. Bless God for that. So here's what I want you to see as we move forward. Look at verse 4. We see that Darius loves Daniel. But other people who want position and power, they hate him because they want his job. So it says in verse 4, at this. Well, at what? At the thought that Daniel might rise to second position in the entire empire. Here's what we read. At this, the administrators and the satraps tried to find grounds for charges against Daniel in his conduct of government affairs. But they were unable to do so. They could find no corruption in him because he was trustworthy and neither corrupt nor negligent. Finally, these men said, we will never find any basis for charges against this man, Daniel, unless it has something to do with the law of his God. Circle, highlight, underline. Unless it has something to do with the law of his God. That is the way we should live. That is the way that we should live. They hate Daniel. And so they put their minds together to try and figure out how can we trap him? How can we trap him? Like we, we see a lot of this um, during election cycles. We see um, defamation ads, right? I know we don't have an election uh, going on right now, but uh, our friends south of the border, they have an election coming up in two days. And we're seeing a lot of this, right? What's going on? Lots of ads talking about political opponents, people on the other side of the aisle saying things like this. So-and-so is a liar. He slept with her. She slept with him. She stole from the budget. He said this at a dinner party 12 years ago. She stole candy from a baby. You know, like they're all just kind of shooting arrows at each other. And here's the interesting thing. They can't find anything for Daniel. And he has been in public office for over six decades. That's incredible, all by itself. There's a sermon right there, all by itself. Stop and consider for a moment. Have we 
showed up day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year, decade after decade, in such a way that if people looked into our lives, they could, like Daniel, say, we can't find dirt. There's no skeletons in the closet. Here is a man who has been faithful over the course of his life. And I think that's just amazing. But again, I think we have to stop and we have to consider again the way in which we read the story. Sometimes I think when we read through Daniel, we read it like a really fun week with Daniel and the boys, right? On day one, they're, you know, they're in the cafeteria and they say, we're not gonna eat this food. And people are saying, Shh, you should sit down, otherwise they'll kill you. And they're like, no, we have to stand, we can't eat this food. And then God blesses them. And then they're like, oh no, if we don't interpret this dream, we're all gonna be put to death. But wait, we can interpret the dream and God blesses them. And then the next one's, oh no, if we don't bow down to this 90-foot statue, we're going to be thrown into the fire. But wait, God rescues them in the fire and God blesses them. Oh no, Daniel's going to be thrown into the den of lions. But wait, God closes the mouth of the lions. God blesses them. It's like a really fun week. However, as I shared with you before, when this story starts, it's 605 B.C., and now when this story takes place, it is 539 BC. So while we often think of pictures like this, there's Daniel, look at that. He's gotta be what, 10, 15 years old. He is at least 85 years old. He's an old, frail man at this point. We know that he's 16, between 16 and 19 when he gets exiled. And 66 years have passed. You do the math. He's at least 83, 84, 85 when this story takes place. And they can't find any accusations against Daniel. And so here, here's a question that we need to consider. We are called to live above reproach so that our family members, our friends, our classmates, our neighbors, the people that we work with would say, there's something different about him. There's something different about her. I don't know what it is. Maybe it's some new philosophy, uh, some new exercise regimen, a new keto diet, something. Like there, there's something different about these people. I just can't quite put my finger on it, but there's something different. So here's the way I put it in your note sheet. We're called to live a lifestyle that demands an explanation that demands an explanation. And the light that we shine with our lives becomes a beacon, a signpost pointing to the God that we serve. And so Gateway, may our lives be conducted in such a way that people are not compelled to look at our lives to say, oh, where do they go on Sunday? But how do they live Monday through Saturday? And I think something that we need more of in modern day Christianity in US and Canada and Europe right now is not lives that demand expectations associated with our freedoms, but demand an explanation by virtue of our conduct throughout the week. Do you see the difference? That people would say there's something totally different about, they have an exceptional spirit, exceptional qualities. We know them to be the fruit of the Spirit, but they would just say, my goodness, they're so loving. They are so incredibly patient, so compassionate. 
the joy that they have, even in the midst of their circumstances. It's been a really tough year for them for the last year. But look at them. They have such incomprehensible joy. And the patience, oh my goodness, the patience. And they're so kind. And the self-control, I just don't know what to do with it. They don't have the words to communicate what we know, that the Holy Spirit is abiding in us. And they see it through our conduct. Brian McLaren once said it this way. He said, the world may not know the intricacies of doctrine or the intimacies of worship with God, but they can tell a bad temper, selfishness, conceitedness, or dishonesty when they see it. The world is a very poor critic of my Christianity, but a very sufficient one for my conduct. Could that be said of us too? By virtue of our conduct and our behavior, do your neighbors and coworkers and family members and friends and classmates, do they say there's something different about him? There's something different about her. What has your conduct said about the God that you serve? Let's pick up at verse six. So these administrators and satraps went as a group to the king and said, may King Darius live forever. The royal administrators, prefects, satraps, and advisors, and governors have all agreed that the king should issue an edict and enforce the decree that anyone who prays to any god or human being during the next 30 days, except you, your majesty, shall be thrown into the den of lions. So they found a weak spot, and I got to hand it to them. Like, this is pretty ingenious. It's associated with two things. Number one, Daniel's faith, and number two, Darius's ego. Daniel's faith and the ego of Darius. So they go to the king and they essentially say something like, oh, your glittering highness, we were just talking about you. Oh, we were talking about how amazing you are. Did you know that? You are just such an exceptional king, the best, literally the best king there ever was. And so we were just thinking, now that you need to establish your rule and your reign as a king, we think that no one should ask any requests or any prayers to any gods or to any other ruler except to you, your majesty, just for 30 days. 30 days, no more than, they can pray to them later, but for the next 30 days, they can just grovel over you and realize that you are the sole provider for all of their needs. It will establish your rule and your reign for the years to come. And of course, Darius loves this. On and on they go. And so what we see with Daniel is that his faith is the only indicator of what he will and will not do. Did you hear that? His faith is the only indicator of what he will and will not do. And so here's what we read right after that. Look at verse 8. Now your majesty, issue the decree and put it in writing so that it cannot be altered in accordance with the law of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be repealed. And so King Darius put it in writing. So at this time, the Medes and the Persians had a custom that once a law was passed, it couldn't be changed. It couldn't be repealed. And the reason for that is because sometimes kings had uh, a really bad night of sleep. They wake up on the wrong side of the bed and instantly, what do they want to do? They, they want to create some arbitrary law. Like, do you know in Canada, radio stations have to have a certain amount of Canadian content every single hour, right? That's a law. So someone had the great idea that we need to all listen to more Nickelback 
Who needs that? No one needs that. And so what they said is we need to have a little bit more uh, creativity when it comes to these laws. Like if a king plays pickleball with someone who's left-handed and loses, he creates a law the next day, no left-handedness. I hate left-handedness. They want to tone that down. And not only that, the laws of the king represented the gods that they serve. And if you repeal a law that came from God, then clearly the gods made a mistake and gods don't make mistakes. The king doesn't make mistakes. And so it cannot be repealed. It cannot be altered or changed. Verse 10. Now when Daniel learned that the decree had been published, he went home to his upstairs room where the windows opened toward Jerusalem. Three times a day he got down on his knees and prayed, giving thanks to his God. Take note of this just as he had done before. Just as he had done before. One more time. Just as he had done before. Circle, highlight, underline. That is so important to recognize. This is really important to recognize because I shared with you at the beginning of this series that we have two twin pitfalls that we need to try to avoid when it comes to how we uh, not only survive but thrive in Babylon. I put it this way, when it comes to living in Babylon, many Christians choose either assimilation or cultural separation. So let's look at Daniel's response as a bit of a case study. What would the assimilation response look like? I think it would go a little bit like this. Daniel would say something like, well, I can pray on day 31. You know, I'll just take a little break. And, or I'll keep praying, but I'll pray while I'm lying down sleeping and they'll never know the difference. Or I'll close the window instead of keeping it open just in case someone might see. Or I might pray the same way people pray at restaurants, right? How, how do Christians pray at restaurants? Dear Lord, thank you for this day. Thank you for this meal. In Jesus' name, amen. You know, you've been there. Come on, you've all been there, right? So like that's our temptation is to do it like that. And so Daniel, he has a lot of different ways that he can do this where he doesn't get caught and yet he's consistent. He's consistent. He, nothing changes in his behavior because he puts his trust in his God. Now, today, what does that look like? Maybe we get scared. We say, like, what will my friends think of me? I'll be an outcast. Or I can't do that in my business. My business would shut down. All other businesses are doing this. Or I'd get ostracized. There's no way that I can do this. And yet, what does Scripture say? 1 Corinthians 10 No temptation has overtaken you except what is common to humankind. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can endure it. So in other words, God will always supply you with the wisdom and the strength to do the right thing, even and especially when it's hard. You're never in a position where it's like, oh no, it's just an evil choice versus an evil choice. There's, there's no way I can get out of this. God will always give you a way out. And it is our own sin nature, the traitor within, that compels us not to do that. Daniel knows this. And ultimately, it is associated with fear. But because I like alliteration, I gave a P word in your note sheet. And you'll see why by the end of our time together. So here's the first one. The assimilation response is panic. Panic. That's the, that's the flight response, right? Okay, so what if he chose the cultural separation response? What would that look like? Well, I think he'd go something like this. I'm 85 years old. I'm about to die. I'm feeling kind of old and frail. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to go down to the city square. 
I'm gonna get down on my knees and I'm gonna yell out in a loud voice for everyone to hear, God, I'm praying to you. Here I stand, I can do no other, right? And he'll just make, make a scene of it. That's the cultural separation response. And this one is very, very difficult because on the onset, it looks like bold faith because you say things like, here I stand. Here I stand, I will not yield, things of that nature. But if you gently peel back the layers of this response, you will see that this is not ultimately a, a gentle dependence upon God, but it is a heart of self-sufficiency. The way I put this in your note sheet is this, the cultural separation response is driven by pride. And that's the fight response, right? This response ultimately and invariably and always leads to a tit-for-tat mentality. The modern-day Christian quid pro quo. You come at me, I'll come at you. You fight me, I'll fight you. We need to take a stand. We need to fight. These are the things that we have to do. We have to take a stand. And yet we see with Daniel, what does he do? What's the response that he has? Ultimately, it is a life of prayerfulness. Look, look again at verse 10. I've said this to you three times already. Daniel does neither of these. He does just as he had done before. Just as he had done before. This is not an act of protest. It is an act of quiet faithfulness. And after the decree comes, even after 65 years, he's been doing the same thing every single day, praying three times a day, opening up the door to Jerusalem, getting down on his knees in humble dependence toward God. He says, I will do exactly what I did yesterday, today, and tomorrow. I will continue to follow God in those ways. And so here's Daniel's response. It's prayer. It's prayer. Dependence upon God. Daniel chooses prayer because he trusts in God. Let me ask you a question. Was he nervous? Probably. Was he a little bit scared? I think he would be. There's no reason for us to think he was saying, oh, I'm not scared, I'm not worried about it. Maybe he was. Maybe he was terrified. And yet he does exactly the same thing he did yesterday. So let me ask you a question. We started off with Google search. When your heart is anxious and you type in the letter P, in the search engine of your heart, what word shows up first? Panic? Pride? Or prayerfulness? What's the natural inclination of your heart? Where does your heart go in those moments where you experience disappointment? You experience anger? You experience unmet expectations? You experience a diagnosis that you never thought would come. You experience death in your family. Where does your heart go? And so Daniel prays, and of course the satraps see this. That's verse 12, look at this. They essentially, they, they see Daniel pray. They run toward the king with a little too much energy, and they say something like, oh king, we hate, I mean, just hate to tell you this, but we just so happen to be on the balcony right next to Daniel's house with binoculars looking into his room. Who knows why we were doing that, but we were just randomly doing it, and oh, I hate to tell you, king, but Daniel was praying. Oh, and by the way, sidebar, uh, the servants forgot to feed the lions for the last four days. And so we see that Darius, he realizes what they're doing. He's not surprised by any of this. And yet what can he do? 
Daniel, or Darius now has one of two options. He can either throw Daniel in the lion's den or he can undermine his kingship and his authority by revoking and repealing the law. And as we already saw in verse two, he is very worried about his throne. He is very concerned about his throne. And so, as we know, an edict from the king is an edict from the gods. And to repeal that edict would be the equivalent of saying, I made a mistake, and kings and gods don't make mistakes. And so here's what he does. Take a look at verse 16 with me. So the king gave the order, and they brought Daniel and threw him in the lion's den. The king said to Daniel, may your God, whom you serve continually, rescue you. A stone was brought and placed over the mouth of the den, and the king sealed it with his own signet ring and with the rings of his nobles so that Daniel's situation might not change. Does that sound familiar? Take note of that. Then the king returned to his palace and spent the night without eating and without any entertainment being brought to him, and he could not sleep. At the first light of dawn, the king got up and he hurried to the lion's den. When he came near the den, he called to Daniel in an anguished voice, Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God, whom you serve continually, been able to rescue you from the mouth of the lions? Daniel answered, may the king live forever. My God sent his angel and he shut the mouth of the lions. They have not hurt me because I was found innocent in his sight. Nor have I ever done any wrong before you, your majesty. The king was overjoyed and gave orders to lift Daniel out of the den. And when Daniel was lifted from the den, no wound was found on him because he had trusted in his God. At the king's command, the men who had falsely accused Daniel were brought in and thrown into the den of lions along with their lives and their children. Ugh. And before they reached the floor of the den, the lions overpowered, overpowered them and crushed all their bones. I don't like that verse. And yet what we see here in the story is not a prescription from God, but a description of a pagan king and how he deals with his enemies. We've seen this with Nebuchadnezzar. What did Nebuchadnezzar do with the king of Judah? With his own sword, slaughtered all of the king's family members, and then gouged out the eyes of the king and left him blind, wandering in the dark. And so we see this is how pagan kings deal with their enemies. They destroy them and their families so that there is no uprising. I just want you to see this is not prescriptive from God. It is descriptive of a pagan king. Then King Darius wrote all the nations and peoples of every language and in all the earth. May you prosper greatly. Same words that Nebuchadnezzar gave. I issue a decree that in every part of my kingdom, people must fear and reverence the God of Daniel. For he is the living God and he endures forever. His kingdom will not be destroyed. His dominion will never end. He rescues and saves. He performs signs and wonders in heavens and on earth. He rescued Daniel from the power of the lions. So similar to the message of Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel chapter 4. So where do we go with this? What, what is the point of this story? I want you to have the eyes to see that if, if the essence of the story in our mind is some moralistic tale, that if we have the courage to stand like Daniel, God will close the mouth of the lions, then we are missing the point entirely. That is what many theologians call uh, uh, moralistic, therapeutic deism. And it is anti-gospel nonsense. It is moralism. And oftentimes that's the way that we interpret the story. 
And yet we have to see the, the person to whom this story points. Daniel chapter 6 is a subplot to a much more important, grander story. And that is the story of Jesus. Do you remember what Jesus said when he was on the cross? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Or he said, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. Do you know what language that's in? It's not Greek, the, the language of the New Testament. It's also not in Hebrew, the language of the Jews. It is Aramaic. And as I shared with you already, Daniel 3 through 7 is one of the only places in Scripture in which Aramaic was used because it was the language of the pagan uh, nations. And Jesus on the cross is saying, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. That comes from Psalm chapter 22. This is an incredible connection. Let me share this with you. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? There's the words of Jesus. Jesus is quoting scripture. He's quoting the Old Testament. Why are you so far from saving me? So far or from my cries of anguish. My God, I cry out by day, but you do not answer. By night, but I find no rest. Listen to this. Roaring lions that tear their prey open, their mouths are wide open against me, and you lay me in the dust of death. And so we have to see in Scripture, every time the language of lions is used, it is not just in reference to suffering, but the justice of God. The justice of God. If you want to look at some text later, Amos chapter 1, Joel chapter 3, and we see God speaking to his justice, his hatred with evil, in association with the language of roaring lions. So stop with me and see just how similar the story of Daniel is to the story of the death and resurrection of Jesus. A bunch of jealous and vindictive leaders gather together to try and kill him. Daniel or Jesus? Yes. Later he stands before a king who he knew was innocent in every way and had the power to save him, but instead he chooses to protect himself. He washes his hands of the whole thing. Daniel or Jesus? Yes. And then as a result, he's thrown into the hands of his enemies to be torn into pieces and laid to the tomb of death. And just to make sure that the circumstances would not change, the king takes his signet ring, he seals the tomb, and he has officials stand in front of the tomb so that the circumstances will not change. Daniel or Jesus? Yes. Yes. See, it's the same story. And ultimately what we have to see is the true and ultimate Daniel went into the den of lions and he was not preserved, he was torn apart so that you and I could be set free. The ultimate story of Daniel is that we can never be like Daniel. Even Daniel for how faithful and how righteous he was. He is not Jesus. He is not Jesus. But he is in a sense someone who points us to the ultimate liberator of all things, King Jesus. And if we have the eyes to see what scripture is communicating to us, I think it'll do two things. Number one, it will break our hearts because we will realize that Jesus went to the den of death even though he did not deserve it and he was sinless in every way. But you deserved it. I deserved it. Just like the satraps and their families, did you read that portion in which they don't even touch the ground before they're overtaken and all their bones are crushed? Why that little depiction there? 
because that's what we're worthy of. Before we even touched the ground, that we would be utterly destroyed because of our sin. And yet, at exactly the same time, this story will liberate you. It will free you. It will give you the confidence to step out your door in hope. Why? How? Well, this is the way I put it in your note sheet. Jesus, the true Daniel, took the den of death for you. He took the den of death for you. I love uh, that old hymn. It's uh, His Be the Victor's Name. It goes like this. Though the vile accuser roar of sins that I have done, I know them well and thousands more. My God, he knoweth none. That's straight from scripture. Psalm 103, as far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. That's Hebrews chapter 8. For I will forgive their wickedness and remember their sins no more. And so that's what gives us the courage to say, roar you lions. Come at me, death. What can you do to me? Kill me to die as gain. Keep me alive to live as Christ. What can you do to me? And so what gives us the courage to step out our door and to deal with the, the many lion's dens of our own life is not a moralistic story that if you have the courage to stand for God, he will bless your life. It's the opposite. It's the inverse it's a recognition that Jesus has already taken the den of death for you, and therefore you can now have the courage to deal with the, the many dens of your own life. Do you see the difference? Do you see the radical difference between those two stories? It's not trust God and be good for God, be moral for God, and he will bless your life. It's Jesus has blessed your life because of his death and resurrection on the cross. Now, therefore, bless God. And I just hope and pray that we understand the difference. Because here's what it will do. Here's what will happen if we understand the difference. You will be able to deal with sickness and dying and death. Only, only, only if you realize that Jesus has already paid the price of ultimate sickness and death. That he's already so vanquished that power that you are set free. You will only be able to deal with the debts in your life, whether they be financial debts or relational debts or spiritual debts, if you realize that Jesus has already paid ultimately the debt that you had outstanding toward God. And you will only be able to deal with loneliness in your life if you realize that Jesus has removed the chasm that existed between you and God. And that he became the propitiation for all of our sins. The wrath that atones. The substitute who atones for us. That every time Jesus looks at us, he sees the beauty and the perfection of his son. That Jesus is the only person who ever has to say, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That God would never say that to you because of what Jesus has done. My hope and my prayer for you is that you would see that it would burst to life for you once again today and you would see Jesus for who he truly is. Then you will be able to walk into the den of lions and say, Daniel, what does Daniel mean? God is my judge. Here I stand. What else should I fear? Jesus has paid the price for me. You've been listening to the latest sermon in our current Daniel series, Thriving in Babylon. 
You can find resources and information about this teaching series and more information about our church's ministry at gatewaycrc.org. I'm Jason McNabb. Please join us next time for the weekly sermon at Gateway.